0: Everybody, what is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we're reading Joshua 9, which begs some questions about decision-making and deception. The chapter starts off with an acknowledgement that the Israelites' reputation was spreading. Remember, they were moving into the Promised Land, but people were already living there. The Israelite army under Joshua's leadership, had to drive out those groups, and news of their arrival was spreading amongst the inhabitants. Joshua 9, verses 1-2 through 2 read, now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, these things being that Ai was destroyed, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. One commentator puts it like this, Israel's success led several Canaanite kings to ally against God's people. While this alliance was taking shape, the Gibeonites initiated a different tactic. Until now in Joshua, Israel had chosen its military targets, but now others defined their military objectives. The following chapters introduce the transition from a victorious people of God whose occupation of the land could have been the relatively simple matter of defeating those already discouraged to an unending history of battle, bloodshed, and idolatry that would haunt Israel throughout its history. As in the opening chapters of Genesis, so also in the opening chapters of Israel's dwelling in the Promised Land, a single transgression has cosmic ramifications. To put that in my own words, Achan's sin, when he took the items and hid them in his tent, when Achan disobeyed God, his actions impacted everybody else. Had they just done things right the first time, maybe the Israelite victory over AI wouldn't have been so monumental to everybody else— Nonetheless, it became a very big deal, and the word started to spread, causing all the surrounding people groups to dread Israel's arrival and feel the need to team up. But the Gibeonites uniquely say, hey, we're going to go with a different approach. In fact, the Gibeonites, they're like, hey, Israel, we're going to use your own tactics against you. Just as Israel tricked or deceived those at AI, the Gibeonites were determined to trick and deceive Israel. Verses 3 through 6. When the residents of Gibeon heard what Joshua did to Jericho and Ai, they did something clever. They collected some provisions and put worn-out sacks on their donkeys along with worn-out wineskins that were ripped and patched. They had worn out patched sandals on their feet and dressed in worn-out clothes. All their bread was dry and hard. They came to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land. Make a treaty with us. Basically, the Gibeonites, in a supposed effort to save their own lives, are pretending to be in need of help, coming from a distant land far away. And this is where Israel messes up. Verses 14 through 15. The men examined some of their provisions, but they failed to ask the Lord's advice. Joshua made a peace treaty with them and agreed to let them live. The leaders of the community sealed it with an oath. They failed to ask the Lord's advice. They rushed into the decision. They didn't seek The Lord. And this treaty was a pretty big deal because now the Israelites were bound to protect the Gibeonites rather than driving them out. However, it's important that we make some distinctions, as another commentator puts it, uh, or as another commentator points out, God had not forbidden the Israelites from making peace treaties with non Canaanite peoples. That's Deuteronomy 20 but he had expressly commanded them not to make treaties with the native Canaanite tribes, Exodus 23, 34, Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 7. On the surface, granting the Gibeonites' request seemed within the Mosaic law. It seemed to be okay. Consequently, the Israelites took some of their food, possibly to inspect it, but if they ate it with them, this eating may have been part of a covenantal agreement. This custom was common in the ancient Near East. The commentator writes, The Israelites sealed the treaty with a solemn promise to preserve the Gibeonites. That's verse 15. The writer clearly identified the reason the Gibeonites were successful in deceiving Israel. The Israelites did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. They had learned that obedience was necessary for victory at Jericho and Ai. They had not yet learned that they needed divine guidance at every step. Let me read that again. Though they had learned that obedience was necessary for victory at Jericho and Ai, they had not yet learned that they needed divine guidance at every step. The commentator continues, Ironically, of all people, Joshua failed to inquire of the Lord. Joshua had gone up the mountain of Revelation with Moses, Exodus 24, and in his preparation for leadership, he had been trained in the use of the stones for determining the will of God, Numbers 27. How easy it is, even in the service of the Lord, to take God's guidance and blessing for granted. What's the commentator's point? Despite Joshua's proximity and relatively easy access to counsel or direction from God— He hadn't yet learned what it looked like to walk dependently on God or with God, especially when it came to seemingly everyday leadership decisions. So then what happens? Verse 16, three days later, the Israelites discover that these people live nearby. They aren't from a distant land, as they'd originally said. In the people, the Israelite people, they're outraged. We read in verse 23 that the whole community criticized their leaders. Uh, One commentator points out that, Here, the wilderness motif has been turned upside down. For in the wilderness, the leaders were justified while the congregation was guilty. Here, the congregation is justified while the leaders are at fault. And that's pretty unique because overall, Joshua has this reputation for being successful. But here, we're we're reminded or or shown uh, that he wasn't perfect. God uses imperfect people all the time. And the leaders are going to continue to make the same mistake here. At the end of the chapter, when Joshua confronts the Gibeonites, he again doesn't consult the Lord, but decides by himself how the Israelites will relate to the Gibeonites. It's verses 25 through 27, which read, So now the Gibeonites say, We are in your power. Do to us what you think is good and appropriate. And instead of seeking the Lord, verse 26, Joshua did as they said. He kept the Israelites from killing them, and that day made them woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the divinely chosen site. They continue in that capacity to this very day. Now, at the surface, it might seem like this is a good plan. Put the Gibeonites to work, make them assist with the responsibilities surrounding the tabernacle. That sounds holy or good. But in reality... Foreigners weren't supposed to be handling duties associated with the tabernacle. God only wanted specific Israelites, namely the Levites, to assist with the tabernacle. By making a decision that required foreigners to take care of the tabernacle service, Joshua was, in essence, stepping on the holiness of God. And that's where today's chapter ends, giving us some good things to think on. Even if somebody tells you they trust you to make a decision, do you seek the Lord? For example, if your boss says you've got this, you've got the ball, I trust you, do you rely on the Lord or make a decision based on whatever seems right to you in that moment? I'll be honest with y'all. Anytime someone tells me I get to make a decision, big or small, I'm honored and will make a decision right there in that moment without seeking the Lord. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's convicting. Even in the small things, small leadership decisions, or just everyday decisions, we've got to make sure we seek direction from the Lord. It could even be a quick 30-second prayer, as something is always better than nothing. Think about this today. How can you take steps to invite the Lord into your everyday decisions? How can we take steps to invite the Lord into our everyday decisions? That's all we've got time for today. But as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.